I love your mention of Murder on the Orient Express because it's the perfect expression of what we're talking about at the moment. That Agatha Christie has that linearity, to, to take that word linear from you as well, to move it forward. There's a momentum to a story like that. Just as the train keeps moving forward, so does the story. And because a, a story like that is set on a train, there's that inherent you know, claustrophobia, if you will. There's the enclosure of being in a series of railroad cars and everything's at close quarters and that adds to the tension as well. I think when you have this kind of flashback structure as See How They Run does, I think one of the, the risks of that is the fact that you take it out of the linearity, you know, it threatens to slow down that momentum. Because, you know, as you're moving forward with trying to figure out this guy or that guy, then suddenly you're flashing back. And then you come back to the, you know, it, it's a little distracting that way. And I, th I think that hurts the, the film a bit. Hello, and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. Today we're going to talk about See How They Run and Don't Worry Darling, starting off with See How They Run, a movie, Mike, where I'm looking at my notes and I, I thought it was Clue and Knives Out had a baby in a Agatha Christie world. What do you think? I think that's about right. I have to tell you, honestly, when I first started watching it, I had some reservations and, and here they are, you know, like a mental checklist. I'm watching it just as a movie. And, and I wasn't thinking, I mean, I was thinking about Agatha Christie, but I'm watching it as a movie. So anyway, here it goes. As I'm watching, I think, oh, stereotypical characters in this movie, see how they run, a really extreme plot twist. You know, on and on that way, things that are on sort of like the implausible list, right? And it's sort of like getting at me a little bit. And then I stopped myself and I reminded myself of the obvious. Well, of course, this is all about Agatha Christie. It's very much about that. So if those are faults or demerits or at the least observations, one would have the same things about an Agatha Christie story, per se. Now, this, strictly speaking, is not. This is riffing on Agatha Christie. And the premise is that we're in London for the 100th performance of The Mousetrap. So it's very much a 1950s setting. And then Maria will take over in just a moment here, but just as we get into the story, just to give a sense of it, as they are kind of commemorating this 100th performance, there's going to be a murder. That's not exactly a spoiler, is it? You know, in a murder mystery, there's a murder. So in this murder mystery, at this point, because it takes place backstage and involves all these stage characters, all these actors, all these directors and so on, those are the people who are on the list of suspects. It's a very long list, and we'll get into some of that, I guess, without spoiling anything. But that's basically the kickoff for it. So even though, strictly speaking, it's not based on an Agatha Christie story, it's not anything directly from her, it's circling her territory, if you will. It's in the spirit of Agatha Christie. So anyway, I had to smile at myself there as I was making check marks on things that uh, didn't exactly bother me, but just things I was concerned about in terms of stereotypes and predictable and extreme plotting and all that kind of stuff. As I was doing that, I just stopped myself and said, well, wait a minute, it's Agatha Christie. I mean, if, if, if you like that, you like that. And anyway, that that's the turf that we're working on. And that's the kind of territory that's very much stage territory. This is very much a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, kind of movie in terms of, you know, kidding at source and having a lot of fun with it. So having a lot of fun, let me turn it over to you. Well, I really did think this movie was fun. And I always appreciate a movie that is plot driven with good characters that doesn't rely on CGI or special effects. It just tells a good story and gets you, you know, caught up in it. I wanted to mention that this film was described by one critic as a cross between a farce a murder mystery, and with the touch of Wes Anderson stirred in. Where do you see Wes Anderson getting stirred in here, Mike, to the plot? 
Well, he's the kind of director who relies on a lot of artifice. Oftentimes you have really complicated kind of entangled plots, a large ensemble of characters, an overriding spirit of fun. And if you say, well, this is not real life and, and this is not plausible and this and that, well, so what? You know, it, it's a confection, isn't it? It has a sort of pop-up book quality, a kind of storybook quality even. And, and so as you're watching it, you, you don't, you know, to watch it in a quasi-documentary spirit, it would be totally wrong, or at least totally frustrating. So you don't look at it that way. Again, it's a theatrical entertainment, and it should be taken on those terms. And so the reservations I stated earlier are ones where I did a kind of bias check on myself, thinking I was in the wrong frame of mind as I started to watch it. If you're going to give yourself over to it, it can be a lot of fun. If you have logical reservations or you're looking for verisimilitude and this and that, you're in the wrong show. And so the thing is, it's all a matter of, you know, what's your mindset as you approach it. And I don't want to say to turn off your brain, but at a certain point, you do need to kind of do that and just go with it because it gets really complicated in a silly way. And you have to sort of ride with that. You have to go with the silliness of it. If you start to say, well, this wouldn't happen, or that's a stereotype, and on and on that way, it's not going to be much fun at that point. Uh, you just have to give yourself over to the material. And that's sort of like the Agatha Christie experience. You have to get yourself enmeshed in that plot line. And then at that point, you enjoy being an amateur sleuth, don't you? I mean, that's one of the pleasures of See How They Run, is the fact that it's such a long roster of suspects that we all had, speaking of mental checklists, we all had like a checklist of, okay, I don't think it's this guy, it might be her. And you kind of go back and forth on that. And then of course, you know, when there is the final big reveal or series of big reveals, at that point you do another kind of mental checklist. Where was I right? Where was I wrong? And we all want to be right. So at that point you can kind of pat yourself on the back. Oh, I thought I thought it was that guy or you know whatever the case might be. But that's the fun of, of essentially what I'll call detective fiction, trying to sort things out and trying to be a step ahead. Now I've only seen the film once if i were to watch it a second time you know it's on that subsequent viewing that you try to figure out well what should i have noticed earlier isn't that isn't that what you do in a case like that you think well were there clues i missed or is there something i should have noticed and that's sort of the fun of you know watching something like that again but in any event and doubling back on marie's point this is really an entertaining film it's just fun to watch now i will say you're right i love the idea of it being a pop-up book because it is kind of like that you know you turn the page and there's something looks like an instant delight and then, you know, you read whatever's on the page and you turn the page and then there's something else pops up and that's also delightful. That's a great metaphor. Also, the way you're trying to be an amateur sleuth throughout where you're thinking, oh, I think I think it's going to be that guy. I think, oh, no, it's going to be that guy. They have the Shorsha Ronan character, who's a rookie cop, sort of voicing all of those things for you. You know, she goes down one lead and is sure it's that guy and, and it's not that guy. And then she goes down another lead and she thinks it's that guy and it's not that guy. So she sort of stands in for the audience trying to figure out the plot. Now we've said on many shows before that all stories have a beginning, middle and an end, but they're not always told in that order. And that's one of the things that this film did, which I wasn't expecting because they kill off Adrian Brody pretty quickly. And then I thought, wow, that was a, a really brief role for him. I didn't realize that they were going to keep doing flashbacks where you would see him again, filling in the plot. How did you like that approach, Mike, with all the um, jumping out of order to tell the story? Well, Adrian Brody gets to be Janet Lee in Psycho. <laughs> <laughs> he, he dies so near the beginning of it that it's kind of a shock because you think he'll be the star of it. But to set the grounds for that, he plays a Hollywood director, kind of a sleazy director, actually, not, not the highest uh, credentials in an ethical sense, we'll put it that way. 
But in any event, what he's doing is he's planning to make a film version of the play. And that's why he is in London to see the show. And so he's going to mix and mingle with all the Brit actors and stage types, the theater owner and so on. And so, you know, when he's done away with really early, so I guess I've spoiled one thing in terms of who's murdered, but I won't spoil any of the murder mysteries. So it's a whodunit in terms of well, who killed him and why. And again, the fact that it jumped around in time like that, I've thought about this a lot, and I'm not sure the film benefits from it necessarily. I, I would love to see a, this is like entirely hypothetical, a kind of whimsical thought, but a re-edit in which it was told more or less in a, a straightforward chronology. I don't think you need flashback material here, but I'm still thinking it through because the, you do learn some things and get some insights from the flashbacks, it's true, but methinks. I never said methinks on air before, but methinks that that perhaps that same information could be conveyed in present day, quote unquote, present day footage, just carrying it forward. I think it's already a complicated story. And I think the flashback structure is never entirely confusing, but I think it verges on confusion sometimes. And even if it's not confusing, I think maybe it's overly busy. I think sometimes the film just gets a little too hectic, a little too involved. And I don't want it to slow down and become meditative, no. But I, I think you can keep a relatively fast pace and move forward. And anything that would have been in flashback could be verbally referenced quite quickly, actually. And you'd keep moving forward. Um, how do you feel about that? Because I'm still kind of sorting it out myself. But I just have a feeling I might enjoy it more if it didn't have the busyness of, of the flashback structure. Yeah, if you look away for a moment or your mind wanders for a second, you know, you'll you'll miss something. That's that's the tricky part. And I mean, it's been a while since I last read an Agatha Christie story, but I don't remember her doing it any other way than linearly. You know, you start off on the Orient Express or whatever, and then there's a murder and you have to figure out what happens, but it doesn't jump back and forth in the book. So I thought that was sort of a strange way to tell the story. But as you know, making a movie and making it exciting and pacing it is much different from a book. What I did think might have been at play, although I kind of doubt it, it's sort of a reach, but it did occur to me while I was watching it. Mike, did you ever have that children's game mousetrap? It required yes, setting up, it required all this setup for, you know, the ball to fall and hit the thing and something to fly and, you know, it was sort of a Rube Goldberg kind of a thing. But the at the end, you know, you got the cheese. The fun part of that was when the inevitable happened and you got to watch all of the things, you know, in motion. That's not really how the game's supposed to be played. But when we used to play it, we would just set it up and then make it all kind of like the domino thing. Set it up and tear it down instead of actually playing the game. And I wondered if that was sort of a play on words to um, make you think of the mousetrap game and to think about all the different ways it could go and, and explore some of them as a way to tell the story on the screen. What do you think? Well, that's certainly a possibility, but I love your mention of Murder on the Orient Express because it's the perfect expression of what we're talking about at the moment, that Agatha Christie has that linearity, to, to take that word linear from you as well, to move it forward. There's a momentum to a story like that. Just as the train keeps moving forward, so does the story. And because a, a story like that is set on a train, there's that inherent you know, claustrophobia, if you will. There's the enclosure of being in a series of railroad cars and everything's at close quarters, and that adds to the tension as well. I think when you have this kind of flashback structure as See How They Run does, I think one of the, the risks of that is the fact that you take it out of the linearity. You know, in other words, you, it threatens to slow down that momentum because, you know, as you're moving forward, we're trying to figure out this guy or that guy, then suddenly you're flashing back and then you come back to the, you know, it, it's a little distracting that way. 
And I, th I think that hurts the, the film a bit. I think with Agatha Christie, things are complicated enough already. You don't need to add to that. And, and again, as I said before, it's, it's never out and out confusing. It just seems to me so busy and so, so frenetic in, in some ways. That's why, at least in theory, I'd love to see a re-edit. And, and you know, you're not, not being really like reshoot, just like re-edit it in such a way that you can let the story tell itself and, and move forward. The film, I have to say, even with the flashback structure, it comes in at a very brisk 98 minutes. So to the film's credit, even with that flashback structure, which you would think would lengthen the running time, as well. This is a, a fast-moving story, uh, maybe too fast at times. So even as it's moving forward and back in time, it never really adds, you know, if, if it were like two and a half hours long, I think we'd be complaining about it, right? But it, it's just a little over 90 minutes, and that's about the length I think a story like this should be. You don't want to wear out the viewer's uh, patience, because you can only play that game for so long, this guy or that guy. And after a while, you need to take a break and get yourself, a, you know, a drink or something. Like, Phew, I'm, you know, I'm worn out here. You, you need to keep the audience with you, and you don't want the audience to slow down long enough to think too much. And I know that sounds sort of condescending, but like a story like this, whatever the premise and whatever keeps it moving, you need to keep it moving. Because if you really slow down here sometimes, that's where intellectually you could start to nitpick, right? You could say, well, I don't know about this stereotype and, and that can't be that guy. and oh, all that's ridiculous. You don't want to think too much that way. And I'm trying to say that in a non-condescending way. You don't want to think too much that way. You want to get into the spirit of it. And Marie, as you said earlier, the artifice of it, the Wes Anderson quality of it, you want to be pulled into that and just stay within that realm and not think in a, in a more, you know, logical, uh, you know, sort of empirical way. You don't want to do that. You want to just get yourself. And that's a, the great thing about storytelling, period. Whatever the story, you want to be pulled into that story. And that's your world. You don't want to have your outside everyday world impinging on that in terms of, well, how would an actual police investigation operate? You don't want to go that way. You, you're in the spirit of Agatha Christie. Go with it as she has it. And again, even though this is not directly based on anything by her, it's so much in her spirit that I, I think the same way you turn yourself over to her stories, you have to turn yourself over to the story and see how they run. There's lots of little tributes to Agatha Christie in it also. One of them is all the names of the dentists on the, you know, where you buzz to be led into the building are names of characters, including dentists in some of her stories. So that kind of thing I thought was really clever because it's, you know, leaving clues around in an Agatha Christie story. How genius is that? I also really liked the cadence of the dialogue. Even though it was repetitive, I thought it worked when every time the two leads are together, Sam Rockwell and Shorsha Ronan, you know, they address each other, you know, constable, inspector, and you're waiting for it each time. It's like a tennis game. You're waiting for them to say the words in the same way they say it. Somehow I felt like that was funny. It sort of grew on you like a verbal joke. I also really liked both of them in these roles, especially since I read that originally Hugh Grant and uh, Kira Knightley were supposed to be the leads. And I, I don't think they would have been as good. They're both a little bit more flamboyant than I think these characters required. And I also read that Sam Rockwell struggled trying to figure out, you know, what kind of tone and stance to use. And he settled on uh, Inspector Clouseau. And as, you know, with the sort of Inspector Clouseau kind of feel to it, I thought that worked. How did you like the leads? Well, in terms, to your point about the names, the naming, some of it's clever, some of it's maybe not as clever as it thinks it is. For instance, the two police investigators, 
the two detectives. Uh, there's Inspector Stoppard, the, the character played by Sam Rockwell. Now I see the name Stoppard and I think, well, Tom Stoppard, maybe this is sort of riffing in a naming sense on, you know, the real Inspector Hound or something, but it doesn't really lead anywhere. You know, it's sort of, a, it's an almost distracting, like, it's the sort of thing if you're sitting around with your friends, just sort of, you know, conversing and just having some fun and all the kind of wordplay you might have that, you know, honestly wouldn't be all that funny. It's only funny maybe in that moment. But when you have it as a fixed name for a character, maybe not so funny. But that Inspector Stoppard is the grizzled detective. He's the veteran. He's the gumshoe. He's all that stuff. And so uh, Rockwell actually plays him quite well. So I agree with you on that. And the rookie detective is Constable Stalker, played by Shoshi Ronan. Why Stalker? See, that's where, uh, I mean, the character's amusing, actually, but the name itself, for me, is the kind of name that's sort of distracting and not all that funny. Not, not just ha-ha funny, but even smile funny. You know, it's just not that... Funny. It's kind of forced a bit, right? And Agatha Christie certainly has her forced moments. Uh, that's part of the experience in terms of um, you know names and in terms of uh, plot events and all that. But I think this film sometimes is is it trying too hard or not trying hard enough? I, I'm sort of going back and forth on that one. Sometimes the naming seems kind of glib, kind of facile, kind of arbitrary is what essentially I'm, I'm saying here. But the two of them together work very well because it's that kind of duo where you have the opposites who are thrown together as partners. And so, you know, we can go all the way back to Laurel and Hardy, if you will, but you think about the pairings of like, like you know, one looks this way, the other looks that way, different outlooks and different physiognomy and all that, different gender. And so they're the, the two cops, if you will, tossed together that way. And the uh, Shushi Ronan character is actually very funny because she's full of what to many people would seem like non sequiturs even like she's investigating this murder mystery, but it takes place in a theater, right? And so she makes these random or seemingly random observations about, about other shows, other plays, this and that, and which to me are very funny. But some of the other people are like, what? You, you know, you're investigating a murder and here you're talking you know, like, like the relativity of, well, this performance was better than that one kind of, kind of conversation. But that actually struck me as like being really plausible. Like you go into a situation, what's on your mind? Well, you're in a theater and you start thinking about plays you've seen and uh, you know performances. And so, you know, and she actually is an actress. I mean, she's really good with that because she is doing her job. I mean, she's actually going to be a very good investigator in a lot of ways. But on the face of it, on the surface, people sometimes might wonder, well, where is she like mentally? What is she thinking about? But you know what? She actually is very sharp but she's not given enough credit for that early on. And that's a nice twist or a nice touch, sort of a, a Fargo-esque touch of, of, you know, not realizing just how sharp the sheriff is. And she she plays that role extremely well. So to your question, Marie, I think the two of them work together extremely well as, as a duo. And they really kind of anchor the film because there's so many other characters who come and go. They kind of flash here and there. You don't have like really just a very fragmentary sense of some of them. They are sort of literally pop-up characters, right? But those detectives are consistent and they help to thread together all these other seemingly disparate and, and sometimes meandering plot threads, but they keep it centered. I want to mention as a final fun fact to know and tell, you get to see Agatha Christie uh, as a character in the movie, which I thought was also fun. And I did not expect that. And in it, she attempts to kill the murderer with some poison tea. And in real life, she learned a great deal about poisons in her experience as a nurse during the First World War. It was this extensive knowledge of poisoning that inspired her to write murder mysteries. Yeah, so the next time anybody offers you a cup of tea, particularly if they have an English accent, think twice before think accepting twice. that cup of tea. <laughs> Especially if it's from Agatha Christie, although I would think that would be your first reaction, like, wait a minute, maybe this isn't safe. But now I want to talk about Don't Worry, Darling, and I'm really interested to hear what you think of this movie, Mike, because it's had so much controversy about, you know, they've changed actors, you know, throughout. And apparently there was some bad blood with some of the people, some issues with promoting it. People didn't get along. But I have to say, watching the movie, I didn't 
notice that. I went in with great hopes because I think Florence Pugh is a wonderful actress. I thought she was great in this. And I love Olivia Wilde. I loved her on House. I loved Booksmart. And I was really looking forward to seeing this. I will say at the outset, she cast herself in it, which I think was a mistake. She seems so, I don't know. She sticks out like a sore thumb to me. What do you think, Mike? Well, this film actually has had so much media coverage all about the troubled production, much more so than the film itself. I think it's a commentary on the nature of, of uh, social media, that there was so much of this you know, gossip flying around about actors being replaced and actors not getting along. And did one actor actually do something disrespectful to another and on and on that, you know, I, I followed all that. How could I not? It was bombarding me. But you know what? As I watched the film, I was able to put all that out of mind. And I think you need to at some point. You're watching a movie and it works or doesn't work on the terms presented on screen, right? So the other stuff is interesting, scuttlebutt, but honestly doesn't affect the film in terms of what we're watching on screen. Now, in terms of what we're watching on screen, this film has been described as a feminist gothic. And the reason it's described that way is for the premise or, or the, the grounding of it, it takes place in a desert town called Victory. Now, first of all, if you have any film that's set in a desert town, totally isolated from the rest of the world, you start to wonder, don't you? What is this place really like? And when you call it Victory, well, may, maybe it's not all good cheer and, and, and victorious people. Maybe there's something a little fishy here. And what I'm getting at, and this is not a spoiler whatsoever, is this town seems not only perfect, but too perfect. It's that kind of stage-managed world. And it's also, you know, providentially set in the 1950s. So it has that quality to it. And, and we all can fill in the details for that kind of a world. And the women in it in particular are smiling so constantly that you think, is this a convention of the Stepford Wives? What's going on here? And, and so again, without spoiling anything from the opening moment, you realize there's something off here. And, and you start looking for, a, you know, speaking of clues, you start looking for clues. What's a little off here? And I was thinking in terms of other films that might be very different in, in significant ways, but have this similarity. Think of like The Truman Show. The moment you see that perfect town, you know, something's not quite right here. And so this story is, is going to, you know, explore that. Now, where I have a real problem with the film, and I think as a director, Olivia Wilde is really capable. I, th I think her first film, A Book Smart, as a director, is, is the better of the two films. But in both films, I mean, at a technical level, she can make a movie. So that, that's never in doubt at all. We can talk some more as to whether it was a smart move to cast herself here. Here's the problem with this film. Even though it's very capably made and well cast and all that, and it has a worthwhile story to tell, the problem is this, that she is so devoted to creating and kind of conjuring up this too perfect small town that the film takes its time. It kind of dawdles with that. It kind of immerses us in that environment very convincingly and then just sort of circles around it, reinforcing it. And I was looking for some critical reinforcement on this, thinking, am I the only one who had this feeling that the film's kind of disappointing in this respect? And so Manola Dargis, who reviewed it in the New York Times, wrote this about the film. Olivia Wilde is so taken with the world that she's meticulously created with its colorful veneer, martini glasses, and James Bond poster that she can't let it go, close quote. And that perfectly embodied the way I felt about the film. If you showed me an individual scene from it, I'd say, this is terrific production design. This is really well cast. This is really you know, smart, grade A filmmaking. But if you have a scene like that, and then you just have another scene like that, you know it's going to start moving dramatically, but it takes a long time to do that. When it finally does, it would involve spoilers as to what happens or how we feel about it, but it just takes a long time to get there. 
I agree with everything you said. And I will say that I, I had read that Olivia Wilde deliberately wanted to invoke the idea of the Truman Show and Inception. But the whole time I was watching the movie, I felt like she was too clever for her own good because I also felt like there was a lot of nods to get out to the Matrix, certainly the Stepford Wives, Edward Scissorhands, and of course, Alice in Wonderland. The main character's name is Alice. Olivia Wilde plays the next door neighbor whose name is Bunny, you know, like the White Rabbit. The references to being through the looking glass, reflections everywhere. I just thought there was a whole lot of metaphors, like she couldn't decide on one, so she just decided to throw them all in there. I agree with you completely. This is what happens at, at the conference table when, when the uh, director and screenwriter and other folks sit around. A lot of clever banter would go back and forth. I wasn't at that table, so I'm just you know hypothesizing, but a lot of clever banter would go back and forth. And you think, hey, Alice in Wonderland, well, let's call uh, my character Bunny, you, you know, all things like that, which again, uh, you're absolutely right, Marie. It's, it's like all that then gets tossed into it. And the film becomes, I would say, like, you know, it's going to be self-conscious. It's a very self-conscious film. How could it not be? But overly self-conscious so clever that it wants you to know how clever it is. Sometimes that can be a turnoff after a while. Marie, I think that's what you're getting at there. It's just like, okay, you know, like, like do some streamlining, do some editing, get down to some metaphors or names or things you want to really focus on. And you can't put all of it in, or you shouldn't put all of it in, because it's just like too much. It's too forced. It's too artificial at a certain point. And in some ways, it just becomes almost overbearing. You just feel like, okay, okay, they're, they're giving us another clever reference. I, mean, I'm, I think, Marie, that's sort of what you're getting at. It's just like too much of that. It's too clever. One of the things Olivia Wilde said about the Chris Pine character is that he was based on psychologist and author Jordan B. Peterson. It's like there's so many ideas in here. It could have been a completely different movie, but it, rather than focus it better, it's like they just decided to leave everything in and let the chips fall where they may. Maybe in an attempt to put you off the trail. If you just sort of cloud the movie with all these different ideas, it'll keep you from zeroing in on, wait a minute, like a fact I found puzzling was that Florence Pugh's character, Alice, goes off into the desert where you're not supposed to go off the compound because she sees a plane crashing. And there's also this repeated motif of the neighbor who has you know, seems to be losing her mind because her son has died. And you keep seeing these flashbacks with the kid with a little airplane. And it's never explained. And we never find out, did an actual plane crash? What was the plane all about? I thought there was a huge plot hole. Well, even what's this whole town all about in terms of economically, what keeps it going? Things like that are never really developed whatsoever. And you start to scratch your head about them. But anyway, in the aggregate, with all this stuff piled into the film, it has a running time of 122 minutes. It does run too long. It just keeps reinforcing some basic points and not exploring others whatsoever. With all the things that we've talked about being a problem, I did think that Florence Pugh was fantastic in this. I thought Olivia Wilde was just a little bit too intense. And Chris Pine was wasted on this. And I really like Chris Pine. So I don't, except for Florence Pugh, I thought everybody else was just mediocre. But she was outstanding. She gives the strongest performance by far. She's one of the main reasons to watch it, actually. Some of the secondary characters, the performances just seem, you know, like too extreme or kind of pushing it too far that way. And kind of, you know, almost like, you know, one dimensional things. But she brings a lot to that character. It's not always in the script, but as a performance, she brings a lot to it. As a feminist story, though, I will say I was thinking about it for a couple of days and some of the ideas that it brought up, and I don't want to give anything away because I think what is good about this is 
the surprise when you get the big reveal. It did have some ideas in there that I thought were really very provoking, thought provoking. And I want to give Olivia Wilde props for attempting something like that. The ideas are just tossed in, though. They're just in with the mix. I think you gave it more thought than they did in some ways. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that would be a shame, actually. But I hope this means that her next movie will be a little tighter. I have a feeling there were so many personalities to work with. That must have just been like herding cats. Yeah, that's where the backstage melodrama may have impacted actually what we're watching on screen. But I would give it a watch anyway, even with all the misgivings that I've just expressed. How about you, Mike? It's It's definitely worth seeing. Just realize it's going to be inherently frustrating in various ways. But if nothing else, watch it for Florence Pugh's performance and watch it for the production design. It's a really well-designed film. I mean, there's a lot of visual pleasure just simply with the way they design this small town. So, So, yeah, it is worth seeing. Well, that does bring us to the end of our episode. Don't forget to check out our other podcasts at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also on Spotify and Pandora under Dragon Digital Radio. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.